Let's pray together. Our Lord and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity this evening to open your word again and to uh, let it speak to us. We pray, Lord, that you, uh, although I'm sure you have already been doing a work in our lives today, to open our hearts and our ears to listen to you, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that our hearts would not be cold or, or averse to hearing from you. And Lord, we just thank you that your word of God is so abundant to us, available for us to learn and seek you. We pray we do that this evening. In your name we ask and pray. Amen. So uh, this morning we began, uh, if you weren't there, don't worry. There was no part that you needed to know this morning to carry on this evening. But we were looking at Luke 9, looking at uh, verse 46 to 50. But we only got up to verse 48 before we ran out of time. And actually that's been quite convenient in the sense that uh, 49 to 56 tie in well together. And so our intention is to kind of carry on where we left off uh, this morning and continue on. I'm just wondering why this doesn't look right. And it's because it's Acts 9 that I'm looking at, not Luke 9. So we're back on track, I think. So we're going to be taking verse 49 and 50 with it. Uh, Luke 9, as I was saying to you this morning, is an amazing chapter within the scriptures. It's also kind of a, a link. It, it ties in the beginning first uh, eight and a bit chapters of Luke, which are about proclaiming who this Jesus is that's coming. And then on his way to Jerusalem, we begin the second part of uh, Luke's account of Jesus' journey as he begins to head to Jerusalem and teaching the disciples. And so, in a way, we're joining the college class of the discipleship to follow Jesus before he gets to Jerusalem. And the last part of the book of Luke is really about his death and resurrection. So if you have your Bibles, please do turn to Luke 9, and we'll begin together at verse 49. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into Samaria, uh, the Samaritan village, to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Amen. God's word to us this morning, this evening, pardon me. So we saw uh, this morning about the issue of humility and the need that we have for the kingdom value and characteristic of humility in our lives. We saw that from the very beginning, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had been given the instructions to to, uh, subdue and enjoy and uh, kind of flourish in the Garden of Eden with this kind of one condition, not to eat from the tree of knowledge. And Satan comes along and he says, hey, God told you that, not because... He's being good to you because he wants to hold back because he knows that you'll be like God if you eat of this fruit. And so Eve with Adam, with her, looked and saw that this fruit was good and wanted to be like God and felt like God was holding something back from her. And right from the very beginning, 
Pride has been the issue for us constantly to trip over. I was talking this morning about the fact that if we don't watch our pride, if we don't watch our humility, it just naturally diminishes. Nobody comes more humble just naturally. They have to work at it. But if you don't work at it, pride always seeps back into us. And why this passage is so helpful next, and surely must have been why Luke was inspired to put it in next, is because we see two outworkings of this pride in the disciples' lives. So the uh, first one is that Jesus has already placed a child among them, showing the need that we have to be like a child. We saw this morning about being helpless and dependent on God. And I think in this context, I think John John kind of seems to be one that gets it. You certainly look at the Gospel of John. He understands things deeper than necessarily some of the other disciples always did. Certainly the theology of the Gospel of John is thick and beautiful to look at. And I think John was catching on what the problem was that was going on here, to what Jesus was addressing and the problem. And I think this was like a confession that was beginning to come forward from John to Jesus, realising what they had been doing, realising that the pride was getting away in the way of their ministry. So verse 49 says, We saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. John says they tried to stop the man. Sounds a lot like they were rather unsuccessful in their attempt to stop this man. But we know very little about him. It appears he wasn't one of the disciples of Jesus. One of the larger group of the 70 from which in chapter 5 of this gospel, Jesus picks his 12. Yet he knew enough about Jesus to be able to cast out demons in his name. Meaning he knew Jesus and he knew about the authority that Jesus had. Maybe he was told about Jesus by someone else. Maybe he was around Jesus for a shorter time and wasn't so well known amongst the other disciples. Regardless, he was indeed driving out demons in Jesus' name, which is what drew the attention of the disciples in the first place to him. The disciples' actions might be quite valid. Certainly tonight we need to address what it means to know if someone is for Christ or not. I would validate their actions in that the disciples were be given specific authority. Verse 1 and 2 of this chapter tells us Jesus had called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. These were specific instructions given to the disciples, which was not given to this man. In a sense, what they were doing made sense. But Jesus didn't thank them for their effort. In fact, he tells them not to do so again in the future. And here's the reality of the situation. Jesus' rebuke reveals that the disciples did not like the fact that this man was acting outside of their authority. They were special. They had been chosen. And this man did not qualify in the way that they had qualified. Remember that argument. And if you don't remember and you weren't here this morning, you can read the couple of verses before They have an argument about who's the greatest. And some of the 12 would say, well, we were picked out of the 70, so I'm sure it's me. And the three who were picked to go up in the Mount of Transfiguration would have said, well, you know, you're special, but not as special as I am. And I'm sure they had examples. I did this. I did that. I'm greater. And Jesus knows their thoughts, knows their argument about who's the greatest. 
John, as a result of that conversation, confesses this situation. It's clear in the context. The disciples didn't like other people taking their shining light, their glory. I sympathise with this because sometimes I get confused by a change in the process, missing the goals and outcomes. I was encouraged to hear that others struggle too, as an older man was telling me a little while ago about, I think it was his mother or his grandmother, who used an old-style washing machine. It was a big pot that you'd put your clothes into in extreme temperatures and stir into it, and then you'd scrub out all the stains of it. I don't really know exactly how it worked. Um, not a technical person, but I had the picture of Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. You know, the mum. I don't know if that's nothing to do with scripture. Like That's just an example of what went into my head when she was telling me about how it worked. And then you'd wring them all dry and whatever. Anyway, he came to get a new washing machine for his mum. And his mother just refused this idea of a new washing machine. She didn't trust it. She thought, no, no, I know the way I've done it for all these years. I understand how I do my washing. I don't trust these drums that you're trying to introduce to me. All this kind of new stuff that's going on. No matter how much her son protested that this would save you time and effort and it would help you in the work that you're doing, there's no need to oppose this. She would have none of it. You see, the woman had stepped back, had failed to step back and see that cleaning the clothes was the goal. It didn't really matter how much effort she put in, so long as the outcome was correct, so long as the clothes were clean. And so often for us, we can get caught up in tradition and forget that it's about building the kingdom of God. I once heard it said that tradition isn't wearing your grandfather's hat. It's putting on a new hat like your grandfather did when he was your age. Of course, not all change is for the best. And certainly, most changes have positive and negatives. But we need to be like Jesus and recognise that when it comes to the church, we might have our preferences But the judgment of something being valid or not is not how much we prefer it, how much we get out of it, but instead to recognise, as verse 50 says, whoever is not against you is for you. You see, the great tragedy, and it is such a tragedy for these disciples, is what they tried to do here, was that they'd rather see people living with the hopelessness of a demon than allow this man to cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the hundreds of people this man helped who would not have been helped had he listened to the disciples and stopped? How tragic that is. It reminds me of the Pharisees getting up at, and, and getting upset at Jesus. And this is, this is just irony to the worst degree. In chapter 13 of this Gospel of Luke, a woman who has been crippled for 18 years, try and imagine what it would be like To be crippled for 18 years. I've had a a, a sprain my ankle about a week ago. And like man flu, you know, it's the worst thing that's ever happened. For a week. 18 years of that would have been awful. And she was crippled. And Jesus comes along and he heals her. What a beautiful story. But no, it's not a beautiful story. The people, we're told, are delighted. And so they should be. And what do the Pharisees say? In verse 14, we're told that they say, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. You see, there's a massive gap here. It's as if the Pharisees want Jesus to make her crippled again on the Sabbath and book her into the diary at Monday at nine o'clock. 
Come back in and we'll heal you at Monday when it's convenient to the Pharisees. Look, Jesus, they say, if you want to heal, that's okay. But just do it at our convenience, not at your own. We've got rules to follow. There's no question from the Pharisees as to why Jesus can heal. No care for others who are crippled. They don't run out and say, good grief, Jesus, you can heal people. I know such and such down the road. Let me bring them to you. I know someone else who needs your help. Can you go here? Instead they say, look, can you not heal on the Sabbath, please? It's really upsetting me. I've got a Sabbath to keep. They begrudge Jesus healing. Oh my goodness. They begrudge Jesus healing. Once you can't celebrate the good works of God through others, it's a real sign that your pride has turned you more bitter than milk that's out of date like cottage cheese. This needs to be something we are on the lookout for and it can be common in our own lives. When I played badminton as a teenager, and I did play sports, you wouldn't believe it, but there was a time when I played sports. It wasn't too bad either at badminton. I hated it when my friends won tournaments. I mean, I should have enjoyed it. I should have appreciated it. But gosh, I hated it when they won tournaments. I was bitter about it. I wanted to be the winner. And I couldn't enjoy my friendships uh, winning of these things. I couldn't encourage them and say, well done. I'd always say, well, you got better partnership. You know, in the tournament, you got the easy guys to play until the end. And then, you know, the guy was already played me and he got tired playing me, obviously. And then you won. So you did well, but really it was convenience. It wasn't really your talent. Do you know, you ever been like that? It's a sure sign that your heart is just corrupt. When you can't enjoy God's blessing on another church because you feel like it makes your church seem not blessed. When you can't stand someone else getting the promotion you wanted. Someone else's child coming back to faith while yours does not. If we can't enjoy the goodness of God, we must search our hearts as to why and attack the pride that holds us back from enjoying God's goodness. God's grace to others. What's the cure? The cure is realising what the gospel is and what the gospel does. People may not do things perfectly and they may not do it as well as you think you would have done it or appeared to have worked as hard as you for it. This man in Luke 9 certainly wasn't trained as well as the 12. But that doesn't mean he was not as effective or even possibly more effective since just before this section there's a boy who can't be healed by the disciples and they bring him to Jesus. The disciples were there to teach Jesus' teachings and show God's favour for Jesus' teaching, showing that it was not a new teaching or a heresy, but it was God's message by backing it up with miracles and good works. This man was doing the same thing. He was showing Jesus' power and authority by doing good works in Jesus' name. What is for you is not against you. If people change the message of Jesus or do evil in the name of Jesus, we cannot say whatever is not against you is for you. Corrupting the name of Jesus with false teaching is against those who follow him. Doing evil in the name of Jesus is against those who follow Christ. But for those who act in the name of Jesus Christ, and though their messages may be simpler or they may explain it in totally different ways or do it in a completely different way, we must be careful not to stop someone from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ just because it's not done according to our way. 
or under our authority. Jesus ensures that in the future, the disciples don't get in the way of those who want to do the good works of Jesus. No missionary organization would send Gladys Alward on mission because she was a single woman. They had understandable concerns about her safety, but her calling was greater to her. She saved up and went on her own accord, finding a woman who ran an inn who told her simply to come and little more instruction. Her calling was proven by God's blessing on her life. People tried to stop her going, yet despite great difficulty, she helped reform the province in China that she was in from foot binding, and she went on to bring up many orphans, many of whom came to faith in Christ, thanks to her. In fact, she took them out of China during the revolution, walked them to safety. John Bunyan felt called to be a preacher in England, but he was not allowed to after the restoration of the monarch because he was not in the official church. He was a nonconformist, a Puritan, as it happened. He spent 12 years in jail because he refused to stop preaching. The calling of Bunyan to preach was clear, and his writing remained famous to us today as God used this man to explain the depth of the gospel in books such as Pilgrim's Progress and even of his preaching, even if not in the official church of England. Or in scripture, we read of a fallout among Gentiles believing in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. The Gentiles are torn between two groups, Barnabas and Paul on one side, calling Gentiles to repent and believe in Christ, but not convert totally to Judaism. The other group, the circumcision group, as they have a terrible name, has become, said that they had to convert to be Jews. This did have some logic since the Jews were God's people. Finally, it comes to the council of Jerusalem to make a decision on this. This is the first council ever to be called within the early church. What is it that the council say in their letter to those Gentiles? If you paused and thought about what you would say, You'd maybe say something like, follow the law carefully. Follow the Ten Commandments. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Lots of things that I'd put in. They said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Don't eat meat. Given to idols and don't get into sexual morality. Essentially they're told, look, the rest you can work out yourself. The rest, if you follow the scriptures and understand the leading of the spirit, we trust that God will guide you in how you're meant to represent your church in your areas. Just hold to these two things. Time and time again, we find believers missing out on opportunities of God building the kingdom because they aren't in the ways which we expect or request God to work. We will realise in heaven that God is bigger than our work and his ability to use anyone means that we must be a help and not a hinder to those who sense God's guidance. The evidence for this guidance as true or false will be found in the message and the fruit of the calling. Scripture, not tradition, must be our textbook. And once Jesus moves on from there, he begins the journey to Jerusalem. From now on, Luke focuses on the teachings of Jesus. 
This is the graduate school beginning. Jesus' time is now limited because he knows that what happens when he reaches Jerusalem will be his death and resurrection. He spends time preparing his disciples for that. And the Great Commission, which will take them forward with the power of the Holy Spirit. We're told in verse 52 that Jesus sent messengers ahead who went into a Sumerian village to get things ready for him. This was often Jesus' custom so that food and lodging could be ready for his arrival, as well as, I'd imagine, possibly preparing the villages for Jesus. I could imagine that we're told about the paralytic being healed after Jesus, after being lowered through the roof. It might be that just ahead of the time of Jesus' coming, someone went into the village and said, listen, Jesus is coming. Bring out those who need his help. Bring them, because Jesus is coming and will help them. I think it would have taken time to get that paralytic up to the roof and down through. So I imagine that may be the practice of these disciples. Going into villages and saying, prepare food, prepare lodgings, and prepare for Jesus. He's coming shortly. Regardless of however it's done, these disciples go ahead as told, explaining that they are on the way to Jerusalem. And it's that information that we are told. They're told to leave and not come back. Now, this is quite understandable. Not justified, but understandable. If you understand the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans believe that the Jews split from, uh, from them under Eli the priest. Jews took at the, the Samaritans and said they were foreigners brought into the land of Samaria by the Assyrians. <clears throat> the Samaritans basically argued that they were the continued worship of God. And that the Jews had been taken away into Assyria in the exile and that they had been compromised because they were around all these other gods and that they had remained true and so they were the true worshippers. And the Jews just flipped that on his head and said, actually, we went out as the remnant and we remained faithful in our worship and then you, you're not even Jews, you were taken from all over uh, Assyria and moved into this land and you took your gods with you and you kind of mashed them in a bit with God and so you've kind of got this mucked up worship and you could imagine the heated conversations you're a false worshiper no you're a false worshiper and then you know Samaritans had their temple destroyed so there was like reasons to hate the Jews because they, they hadn't been the nicest to them in the way that they had conducted and the Samaritans were often persecuted eh, as a result um, of that <clears throat> this tension brought about incredible hatred you know the, the statement would be something like the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan would be a common phrase that you would expect to hear amongst the Jews. If they were travelling, it depends how interested you are in this, but if they were travelling, they would take food with them, so they'd rather sleep on the street, on the side of the road, and eat their own food and just carry on to wherever they're going. And Samaria, sadly, was bang in the middle between where they always have to go between the north and the south, rather than go into a Samarian village. And a Samarian village would rather you stayed out in the road than came near their village, because there was that amount of hatred between them. So you can imagine when Jesus comes and says he's on his way to Jerusalem, suddenly it has a rather different perspective for the Samaritans. In reality, Jesus was going to Jerusalem, but he was going to be rejected just as the Samaritans had been rejected in order to die on the cross so that they would not experience the rejection of God as they had experienced rejection from their neighbouring Jews. But they could not see this. They did not give Jesus a chance to explain what he was about to do or show it all the other times, his sympathy 
for the Samaritans. Think about the Samaritan woman at the well. How sympathetic he was to her. We know that the Samaritans were in the wrong. Jesus says when he's speaking to that woman. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We the Jews worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming. And has now come. When true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. John 4. There is a sense of reality that Jesus gives. But then he gives an incredible hope. Hey, it's not going to matter soon. It's not about the temple anymore. It's about me. So here Jesus is making it clear to them. But they don't get that opportunity this village. They refuse that opportunity. Pushing Jesus away in their ignorance. So with a sense of indignance. James and John. Living up to their nickname. Sons of thunder. As they're known. Brothers known for their temper. And with being Jews probably they hated Samaritans too. We're told in verse 54. That they kindly offer. Lord do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? There's no doubt that this is one of the greatest overreactions ever recorded in the Bible. A village doesn't welcome Jesus. Rather than shaking the dust off your feet and moving on to the next place as Jesus had instructed him, James and John come up with a plan to demolish the entire village to ashes. Now firstly, to put this in context, it's not quite as a curveball as you think, although it is right out there. In the beginning of Second Kings, we are told that King Ahaziah fell and hurt himself and sent some messengers to ask foreign false gods to get news of how bad this fall was. They wanted to know from the local false gods, is this fatal? Is it going to be really bad? Am I going to be okay? And Elijah goes and he cuts off the messengers. And he says, don't you have a God here? Don't you already have your own God? Because you've ignored your God, I've got a message for you. It's fatal. You're never going to get out your bed. And Hezekiah kind of begins to ask, well, what did this guy look like? And what did he? And then it was Elijah who'd been a pain in his side for some time. He knew exactly who it was. So uh, Ahaziah sends three captains out with 50 men. And the first two demand that Elijah comes down from the mountain. And both time Elijah calls down fire and it consumes the men. And the third captain wisely negotiates with Elijah rather than making demands on him. Of course, James and John, a little bit before this, have seen Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe inspired by the work of Elijah and they think, hey, got a great idea. Let's be like Elijah. Let's call down fire from heaven for ourselves, for Jesus. You see, in verse 44 and 50, we see the result of pride in us, being unable to enjoy the success of another. But for our enemies, our pride is even more destructive. We do not only fail to enjoy their success, we actively want them to fail. We want to see them in misery. We actively want to see their downfall. And see them hurt. Our hearts can be so corrupt. That we're glad to see their relationships break down. To see them out of work. Or fail at the things they attempt to do. 
Understanding that rejecting Christ is the worst thing you can do. Just in the next chapter, we see in verse 13 that Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. See, the Samaritans, they went off the hook for rejecting Jesus. And hopefully this village was part of the many Samaritans who came to faith when the gospel was preached amongst them after the dispersion of the church. However, the behaviour of James and John did not reflect the gospel that they had experienced. See, these passages go together so well because Jesus worked tirelessly to humble himself for the sake of the mission of his father had given to him. As we saw this morning, Jesus knew, as Philippians says, equality with God was not something he could grasp, or we could grasp, pardon me. So he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the radical life of Christ. Christ could have come as a warrior and defeated all who stood against him. Christ could have come as a scientist explaining the ins and the outs of the solar system. But instead he came as a servant to defeat the sinfulness of self-interest, self-fulfillment and the pursuit of our own happiness at the expense of everyone else. The very nature of humility leads to mercy. Mercy recognises that although God was glorified, he had nothing to prove in saving men and women through his son's death and resurrection. In light of the fact that God gave himself for our salvation at total cost to himself, then mercy does not hold back blessing on others, even when they haven't earned it or cannot repay it. Mercy recognised that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why we were still a long way off from God, still revealing, uh, reveling in our attempts to be our own God, to be like God, as Genesis puts it. God was unmoved from his mission to save his elect. So when people don't respond positively to your kind gestures or appreciate what you do, don't call down fire from heaven on them, but show them the same mercy that God has shown you. A lack of mercy is a sign of a lack of humility. A sign that your actions do not add up to the kingdom values which Jesus lived. We're called to find all that we need in Christ. Not to be offended by the rejection of others. And not to be jealous of others' successes. Or plot to get our pleasure from others' lack of success. All of these emotions are warnings of the ugly reality of pride in our hearts. That need for the great surgeon, the Holy Spirit, to come and do some spiritual open heart surgery on us. So I want to finish on three applications for kingdom living. Reflecting the humility that Christ has exampled to us. Firstly, don't be quick to argue. Notice that Jesus chooses not to argue with the Samaritans. He just moves on. Respecting the request for him not to stop. I like how Spurgeon puts it. Spurgeon said, Scripture's like a lion. It doesn't need defended. 
It just needs unleashed. And there's so much truth to that. So often we feel a need to prove our rightness. So often Jesus didn't. He was serious about the consequences of rejecting him. And he spoke openly about the dangers. But he did not need people to accept his message. He desires that all would be saved, but often he avoided getting into petty arguments, being made to defend himself. He simply spoke the truth in love and made people deal with it. They either rejected it or they accepted it. That was on them to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, to be open to what Jesus said. And so often it pained Jesus to see how pride stopped them hearing his message of good news. We need to be careful that we don't try to make the gospel taste sweeter just because others think it sounds like it tastes bitter without ever trying it. So often we can change. I did it recently, well, a couple of years ago now, but I remember I was speaking to someone who was the son of a professor at the university I was studying at. And um, he was a guy that I thought would just be great for him to come to faith. And his biggest issue with Christianity was how negative it was about Christians. You know, like you're bad and you, you need help. and It's the gospel. And I should have just said to him, you're right. You are bad. So am I. We're hopeless and helpless. That's why Christ came. As I said this morning, I would say again, you know, to diminish the helplessness and the hopelessness of our lives is to actually to diminish the work of Christ. To pretend that Christ just came to be our friend or our buddy. Instead of our saviour who gives us a new life. So I began to say, yeah, well, there's good in us. And there's a bit. And I just remember he just looked at me. And I thought, I'm, I'm changing the gospel to suit this guy. And then he walked off before I could fix it. And had to leave me dealing with the fact that I'd weakened out in the gospel. Instead of just saying, you know what, I don't need to justify this. Yeah, you've got it right here. Your problem. You want help explaining it? You want help talking about it? Fine, but I'm not going to change this for your sake. Jesus doesn't spend time changing things. In fact, sometimes people come to him, he makes it harder. That's the crazy thing about Luke 9. Someone comes and says, I'll follow you wherever you go, but first, let me say goodbye to my family. He says, anyone who puts his hand on the plow and looks back, it's not worthy of the kingdom of God. Like, Jesus, don't you want followers? Why don't you say, well, come follow me for a couple of months. See if you enjoy it. You know, if not, you can back out. Jesus says, hey, it's tougher than you think. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And you realize Jesus isn't wanting pretend followers. He's not wanting fans. He wants people who are committed. Who say, right, I get it. This message is serious. And I want to be part of it. Anyway. I digress, sorry. The secondly, it's not enough to be right. We must be rightly right. I don't know what that means, but I'll explain it in a minute. We must act rightly in the truth we speak. What good is it for James and John to be right in their anger at the Samaritans' rejection if they just consumed with fire? Would the next village worship Jesus out of fear of annihilation? Or would this gospel become a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? Did Saul miss his chance with Stephen? 
and be consumed by fire, never to become Paul who planted churches. No, mercy has to be lived out because Jesus is not just interested in the doctrine, but he's interested in the practice. It isn't enough to be right before God. All those Christians who went on to crusades and kill Muslims and kill Jews all the way along as they went on for this holy war. There was no mercy. That damaged the name of Jesus Christ. There was nothing good about that. Nothing respectable. Nothing pleasing to God. No mercy in those actions. They were wicked in their lack of mercy. And it remains a black spot in our church history. God is interested in our behavior as well as our beliefs. Finally then, humility is about continuing to want what is best for others. It's not just speaking the truth in love. It's refusing to allow someone's behavior to move you from being rooted in Christ. No matter how much someone might reject you, if we react to that rejection, we're not rooted in Christ. I hope that it was James and John who went back to that village to tell them about the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. I hope they realized that just as God had been faithful to them, they had to be faithful to that village. For me, this has kind of become a, a principle. Jonathan and I worked together in the haven in a, the top of the town, an area with huge social deprivation. And so part of our work was working with families who were just chaotic. And sometimes you had to address behaviours. And one day, we hardly even got to the point of addressing a, a, an affair. And the person lost it with me. As if I'd shouted at them or pulled them apart. I hadn't even mentioned it, to be honest. I just refused to <coughs> permit it, if you know what I mean. I didn't engage it. I didn't encourage it. I said, I don't want, I don't want to encourage this behavior. It needs to stop. And that's about all it did. In my mind, I'm thinking, in a couple of months, I'll come along with family and I'll address the issue and try and bring healing and restoration. Didn't get a chance. The, the, out of guilt, I think, I got screamed at. And it, it gave me a conviction I refuse to treat this person differently just because they don't like me. And so I didn't particularly increase my engagement with that family. I didn't run after them as if I wanted to win their favour. But I also didn't reject them and push them away and say, well, if you're going to be like that, I'm never going to talk to you again. I realised that I roughly text the family about once a week. So I decided I'm going to keep texting once a week. Because my behavior isn't rooted in your behavior. My behavior is rooted in Christ. And you can shout at me and you can scream at me and you can do whatever you want to me because I ain't bothered. I'm reflecting Christ in this situation. I'd love to tell you there was a happy story at the end of that. But it's to be continued. <laughs> We're still engaging that family and I pray by God's mercy that breakthrough comes through. But whether it does or not, isn't my job. I'm not here to defend. I know what scripture says in situations. My job is just to unleash it and to take whatever happens as a result of that 
and stay rooted in mercy. Reflecting the gospel, which is be merciful to me. How many times have I rebelled against God? I couldn't tell you how many times. How many times has he took me back? Every single time. How many times have I got deeper with Christ and realized just how corrupt my heart is? So many times. And yet he's the one who shows me the issue. And the great thing about the gospel is the same one who shows it to you begins to work it in you. The same one who convicts you of your sin heals you, brings you closer to him. That's the wonder of the gospel for us. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Humility is about recognising we are children, helpless and hopeless, but with a faithful God. Humility is about realising that the times when we don't want the best for others is a sign that there's something wrong with us. When we can't celebrate God's goodness in other people's lives, there's something going on there. We don't like other people doing ministry because it's not our way. There's something wrong there. But the answer is to be rooted. Rooted and focused. Knowing our outcome. Our outcome is to be faithful to God. To glorify him and enjoy him forever. To see his kingdom come in earth as it is in heaven. And if other people are fulfilling that, amen to them. Let's bless them. Let's get behind them. Let's encourage them. And let us also be faithful in remaining true to our calling to make disciples in this nation. Hamilton needs you. Sterling needs me and lots of others like me. Scotland needs the gospel. Good grief. Our job is to unleash it. Not to defend it. Not to argue it. Not to change it. To unleash it. What a beautiful commission it is to think that Jesus would choose us. Sometimes I wonder if he's made a mistake. I'm sure you're the same. But he doesn't make mistakes. (laughs) Congratulations. You are therefore called to make disciples. What a wonderful commission to have. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are everything. We are nothing. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And you sent your son to die for us. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we ask that we would be people who are humble. Lord, we know that pride is a hard thing to figure out. It's hard to see it in our lives because we think it's so easy to justify. We pray that you would just reveal to us our pride. And Lord, give us a sense of our desire to be humble, reflecting your gospel, but also faithful to unleash it. Lord, for friends and for families, for work colleagues, for neighbours, whose lives are chaotic, we know you are the answer. We don't always know how you will do that, but we know the gospel is the hope for all. Slave-free, Jew-Gentile, male-female. So Lord, we lay it at your throne, begging you to empower us 
to equip us to be faithful to you. In your name we pray. Amen.